0: You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. In what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the Word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. And I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." May God open His Word. He gave it to us first. He needs to bring it alive as we hear it and apply it today. Many of you know the name of Dr. R.C. Sproul, a minister in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. For about 30 years or more, R.C. has become very well known across the nation as a writer, a conference speaker, a producer of teaching videos about doctrine and the Word of God. He's a very gifted communicator who is able to uh, say things often in very dramatic ways that get people's attention. A little story is told about how he once was approached by a student after a lecture, and apparently the student was a little bit in awe of Dr. Sproul as a national figure and speaker. And the student said, Dr. Sproul, what was it like for you back in the days when you were just an ordinary minister? You probably have to know R.C. a little bit, but he became rather indignant as he responded to this young man. And he said, Just a minister? Please, never belittle that calling. Don't you realize that the calling to preach Christ to any group of people, large or small, in this world is the highest office that exists? In fact, God had only one son, and he made him a minister. A similar idea is captured by a saying that I picked up many years ago, and I've never known the source for this, but it means so much to me. I It's the kind of thing I wish I could do calligraphy or something. I would put it on a a framed little passage for my wall somewhere. The saying goes this way. Being called to preach God's gospel of pure grace in Jesus Christ is the sweetest and most privileged labor any person can possibly undertake this side of seeing him face to face. I believe that, and I live by that. And today, as we come in Colossians, we're looking at the subject of ministry, how God takes his word and applies it through human spokesmen, not necessarily just ordained pastors, but through anybody who makes his word known people for their lives to be changed. And you could say Paul is turning a little bit introspective as he speaks in verses 24 and following about his own calling and what it means. Now, let me just remind you, because we have to keep this in in context, it's really important that we do, that from verse 15 onwards in Colossians 1, the focus of this chapter has been on the grandeur of Christ stressing how his greatness and his supremacy is so huge. It's as if the passage starts at the wide end of the telescope and works down to the narrow end, you might say. Christ is the the visible image and representation of the invisible God. He's, He's a participant in creation. He is the binding force that holds creation together. And all these great things that have been said, that he's the the Lord over the new creation of the church, and then we've seen that he too is the one who reconciled individual people who were at hostile relationship with God. He reconciled them and brought them to be at peace with God. He did all these tremendous things. And now Paul's going to talk about what it means to minister for Christ, to make Christ known. This same grand Lord That he's been talking about up till now. You know, I'm sure you do this. I had the TV remote in hand just a few days ago, and I was flipping along looking for something and uh, happened to be at a time of day when I don't know if there's a particular time of day when there are more numerous religious programs or televangelists evident on the networks, but I happened to see several as I went by. So I thought, you know, I've got some idle time here. I'm just going to look in on these folks. I don't pay very much attention to them. And thought I'd stop for a few minutes and just get a flavor of what they were saying. Not terribly edifying, but at least interesting. And uh, I stopped and listened to two different men and one woman ministering the Word of God in some way. And in each case, I could see very smooth presentations and a glitzy studio and a great setup to uh, communicate from. I could see that their ministry, as they would call it, was really a rather successful business empire. And it made me think about the difference in the ministry of Paul as he wrote in Colossians because I'd just been working on this passage. For Paul, his ministry was characterized not by millions of viewers, or by a great network that could showcase him in video, or we put him on the Internet or something like that. As a matter of fact, you could say that because of suffering, Paul's studio was a dank prison cell in Rome. And that is where ministry for Christ had put him. Not in a place with glitz or glamour, not in a place where he would you know, send out a fundraising message to build up his empire and his listenership, but a place where he would simply put the whole spotlight on Jesus Christ alone and put it away from himself. And yet, in himself and in what God was doing through him, Christ could be seen. There's a real irony in this passage because just a bit ago, back in verse 22, we had focused on the way in which that speaks of Christ giving his body of flesh, as it says there in verse 22, to reconcile the church, to win the church and put the church at peace with God. Now in verse 24, Paul speaks of sacrificing his body and his comforts for the sake of the church. Now he makes no comparison, of course, that he's doing what Christ did. But nevertheless, he is seeing the fact that those who minister for Christ are going to follow in the pattern of the cross. And that's really a big marker to understand what God-given true ministry is like because it is distinct from that which is merely a business or that which exalts an individual. There are many facsimile versions of ministry, and that's what Paul was dealing with here in Colossae, people who had come in after him and said, oh, okay, we know you heard from Paul, but now let us straighten you out. And Maybe some of those people, at least, were a little bit like the televangelists who had their own agendas or their own peculiar doctrines or their own reasons for building themselves up in the eyes of people. And their work was not truly an authentic work that brought Christ into central focus. One thing we learn here is that the true preacher of Christ doesn't have the authority to make up his own message. He's not the inventor of his gospel. He's merely the transmitter of something God has given that originated as a great mystery, something Looked upon in in time past by prophets and not completely understood, and yet God was making it known little bit by little bit until Christ appeared. And the other side of ministry here is not only that it's a mystery coming from God, but that it's something that all the way through as it comes to people, it is God providing the power to make it effective, not the personality, not the resources, not the presentation of the one who's ministering. Let's take a look at this and some of the things of what ministry requires because here we are as, as a church that's involved in ministry in many, many things we do, not just what I'm doing right now. But ministry is a broad term that describes everything that our church does, our, our missionaries, our Sunday school teachers, our vacation Bible school, our small groups, all our forms of ministry. I think we learn about ministry here as Paul has some instruction for us in the inspired text. Now, verse 24, of course, begins the text that I read, but if you don't mind me being a little bit out of the ordinary today, I'm going to say set that verse aside for a minute because I want to come to it last. And I really want to begin for a particular reason with verse 25 with a first point to put before you to say that we want to look here at God's commission for gospel ministry. God commissions people to do gospel ministry. We read here, Paul saying, I've become the servant of the church by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in fullness, which is the mystery kept hidden for long generations, but now disclosed to the saints. So what we call the gospel, the good news about Christ is something that began with the Father's hidden plan, with a plan God knew when Adam fell, what that plan was. God knew before He created Adam what the the entire plan would be. The fall didn't take God by surprise. Nothing Abraham ever did or David ever did or anyone along the stream of biblical history ever surprised God. He had a plan, and He was revealing that plan. And what is going to convert people to Christ and strengthen Christian people is to receive the fullness of God's Word, the whole Word, as it is going to tell us and pour out for us that mystery of what God is actually up to. So the messenger of God's Word, this commissioned one, is not a person who invents his message. And in fact, there are real restrictions on how creative he becomes with his message Certainly, it is human words, and we take our words to try to illustrate and apply and explain Scripture, but we have to be very careful that we kind of hew to the mark, that we draw from Scripture what is there rather than imposing on it what we would like to say. That's why quite often we talk about expository preaching as the primary kind of preaching that is done in the church. And to expound something really means to take out of it what is already there. The Latin prefix ex means to take out or to draw out. An exit sign takes you out of the room. And that's what expository preaching is supposed to do. Come to a text, say, what are are the bones of this text? What's the structure of it? What is the main thought? What are the subsidiary thoughts that come around that? What message does God have in this His Word? And that has to be reflected in what we teach and what we preach and what we share in small groups. And we don't just come and say, well, here's a text. Okay, let's read that. Now let's have a discussion of this general subject and, and closing the Bible the whole time and never come back to it. That often happens in many pulpits. A text can be a pretext, just sort of a a launching pad that you take off from and then never refer to it again. But there's no shortcut, Paul seems to be saying here, than to be commissioned to bring to God's people the fullness, the wholeness of God's Word because it's nothing less than delving down into the very roots of what God has revealed that He has been doing from eternity past to the present day and on to eternity future. Our lives aren't going to be deepened in Christ by some kind of pious mysticism. We get deeper and stronger Christian lives by feeding on the Word of God, literally taking its nourishment into it and letting its thinking shape us. This is what preaching needs to do. This is what Sunday school teaching needs to do, small group Bible studies need to do, a ministry that takes out of the Word and puts into the lives of God's people the fullness of what God has revealed. People are starving for this. and Churches aren't simply to be forums where we come and share human opinions. How can we fix the world? What should we do about the recession? There are things that, in one sense, are none of our concern when ministry comes to the fore. We are concerned about what God actually has revealed from his own mind in the fullness of his word. And the Bible is a revelation from God. It's truth that would have been locked up in the hidden recesses of the inscrutable mind of God unless he chose to make it known. And he made it known in this wonderful way that we call revelation, whereby he used human penmen whose whose personalities didn't disappear. The personality of Paul is very much in this letter. And he talks about Epaphras, and he talks about, the, you know, who's doing what and very earthly situations. And yet, we believe God was doing a very remarkable thing in the 66 books of Holy Scripture. He was literally opening his own mind and bringing alive to the saints of God who had Christ as their possession his truths that go right back into the roots of eternal things. And when he says mystery, you know, don't think of the as if the Bible was some kind of secret riddle or code, or code book. You know, we have a lot of silly programs on TV that really make me angry. I, I like to watch the, the History Channel. There are a lot of good things on it. But when it comes to the Bible, most of the things that are on the History Channel are really rather silly. And they have programs, you know, can somebody read the code book of Ezekiel to Predict what's, or did Nostradamus, whoever he was a long time ago, you know, have the code book to show what the Bible actually is saying, as if it was some kind of a riddle or a puzzle you know, that a code breaker could get into and understand. That isn't it. It's a mystery in the sense that its origin is in the mind of God, and, and it wouldn't be known unless God made it known. But the point is, God did make known. In his word, all the sufficient things that he wants his church to know. He disclosed his plan to saints who have the Holy Spirit in them because of faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's not as if this is a mystery like some secret society. The Masons or other secret societies have different documents and rituals and things that aren't revealed to outsiders. And it's not as though we say, oh, well, you know, you have the secret book, you have the code. That isn't it. In Exclusiveness isn't it at all. In fact, it's about inclusiveness because the emphasis here is on a mystery made known, and Paul says, look in verse 27. The, the mystery that's been made known is that the Gentiles share in the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. In other words, if you were thinking this was something just for Jews because it was introduced by the Old Testament No, God is very inclusive about revealing his mystery and bringing into it Gentile believers and Jews to make one people who now are his new creation, his church called by Jesus Christ. So in all this, Paul's talking about his commission to gospel ministry. He's saying, I'm like a town crier. In the old days, the crier who went out into the town square announcing some kind of news or calling the people to a meeting or something of that kind, Here's Paul announcing the mystery of the ages, God's own truth made known. And God especially unfolds this and reveals it to those who come to him in Jesus Christ that they might have a full understanding and a clear knowledge of what it is he's doing in history. Well, Let's go on in the second place because after speaking about God's commission for gospel ministry, I think our text Next talks about God's goals for gospel ministry. You know how today every organization practically, and you encounter this in business or wherever, has to have a purpose statement or a mission. I've always thought it's interesting that corporations have a mission statement. I always thought that was a church term. But corporations have them. What's our mission? What are we trying to accomplish? What are we here for? Let's define it in a, in a few sentences or a paragraph or two. And we do this as a church. It's right on the front page of our bulletin, our Westminster Bulletin. Every Sunday we try to say, here's our purpose. Here's what we think we are to be all about. Well, I'm suggesting that some of the purpose of God for gospel ministry is announced here, especially in verses 27-27. And 28. And this sentence in particular, God has made known the glorious riches of this mystery, which is, and after he says which is, he's telling you the goal. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's one of the great phrases of the New Testament. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's God's goal that Christ would become resident and be formed in you and that there would be hope dwelling in you that would lead you all the way to that eternal glory which is promised to you that you will share because of the work of Jesus. Now, again, let me remind you of the context here because it's so important. Consider once more about the significance of who Christ is. He's the creator. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the Lord of His church. He's the one who went to the cross and paid for men to be reconciled. All those great things that were said about Him beginning in verse 15. You have to keep those in mind and to believe that He holds the universe together. He's its source. He's its end. And now you're being told this same Christ dwells in you if you trust in Him. Not the memory of some Palestinian man who lived centuries ago. This living Lord Christ lives in you. And his dwelling within you represents the steadfast hope of sharing in final glory with God. That's a tremendous phrase, Christ in you. The hope of glory. It almost summarizes everything that Christianity is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. After all, doesn't this just echo what Jesus said he would do? He said to his disciples, I will come and dwell with you, and you will dwell with me and be in me. I will be with you, he said, to the end of the age. In Ephesians, which is very much a parallel letter to Colossians, written at a similar time, Ephesians 2.22 has Paul right there, in Christ you... Believers are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And he says it again in 317 of Ephesians, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. This is an astounding thing. It's not just a figure of speech. We're being told that the fullest expression of the invisible God, Jesus Christ, the Lord of everything, Designs to and desires to reside somehow by this mystery of salvation and indwelling. He will reside in the life of imperfect sinners like you and me. When you consider that he is the fullness of the power and the glory of God, that's a tremendous thing. We are able to be united with all that God is in his perfection by trusting in Christ and being new creations in him. And so we have firm hope of the future. Just one word for it is here, glory. Glory, that's the only word Paul needs to represent the whole future with Christ. Heaven, being presented with him, living in intimacy with him, seeing him face to face, all that is summarized by glory. The great gift of having Christ resident in your life Is to know that you will dwell secure beyond death in glory. But this passage is even a little more explicit about God's purposes as you go to the end of verse 28. For here it says something just a little more. It's not a different turn exactly, but just a refinement of that statement Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we read this that Paul says, by his ministry, here's his hope, here's what he sees God fulfilling. That we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Now the word "perfect" there means fully mature, blameless, totally established, without any fault. The judgment seat of God is in mine. that we can present those who hear this gospel to God, perfect. You know, it's almost time for college and university graduations in just a few weeks. Maybe you have somebody participating in that, and you'll be at such a ceremony soon. And high school graduations come along soon after. But the college graduations, I think, are always pretty much marked by a standard moment in the ceremony after some preliminaries. Usually it's the academic dean who will stand up to say something like this. Mr. President, addressing the president of the college, I now present the graduating class to receive their degrees. Well, thank goodness that the total number of those who would graduate from any college or university are not limited to those who have been academically perfect. You know, if the implication was I now present those who have a 4.0 average and got only A's, in every course, including gym, all the way through, here they are. It would be a far smaller group than the mass that is usually presented for graduation. And thank goodness that you don't, you're not required to have that. You're not required to be perfect to be a graduate. But Paul is saying when we are presented at the last day to the Father, there's a sense in which the ministry that won us to Christ is presenting us to God, and he will, we will be presented perfect, complete, whole, blameless, as faultless as Christ can make us. Every Christian will be that, presented to the Father, righteous in his own sight. What a wonderful thing. There's no possibility of failure when you belong to Christ. There's no possibility of not graduating The hope of glory is you will be presented perfect because of Christ's work in you. I love the benediction Paul used in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, where he says this, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. That's the goal of gospel ministry. But finally, this point. The third point I would give to you, I label this way. I call it the energetic struggle of gospel ministry. Now, I've told you that this is based on Christ's work. It's God's revelation. It's God's goal that's being accomplished. It all sounds like it should be easy and smooth. But now I put you back in verse 24 that I skipped at the beginning because it's an important verse, and we'll look at it here. And look at how Paul opened this passage that probably is set off as a new paragraph in your Bible because it is a slight transition from verse 23. He says this, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. That's the suffering of Christ, okay? What was suffered for you, Christ. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Boy, that sounds curious, doesn't it? It not only sounds curious, it almost sounds blasphemous. If you read it the wrong way, you could say that Paul is telling you here, well, Christ is the one who saves you, but, you know, he, he didn't do something, and now I'll do it for you. Well, we know he's not saying that because if he were, he'd be denying everything else he says, not only in this letter but many others, about the complete sufficiency of the work of Christ and the atonement of Christ. Paul isn't saying, I can provide part of your atonement. Heavens, he would have been horrified. I think he uses this device of speech to get attention when he says, I'm filling up in my flesh what is lacking. What he means is, that communicating the message of a suffering Christ involves suffering for the communicator and for those who receive it. The message of the cross brings with it the way of the cross. And there are many passages of Scripture that remind us that suffering comes when we accept this Jesus Christ who suffered on our behalf. In fact, suffering is a sure mark that we belong to Christ. If they treated me this way, he said, they're going to treat you the same way. And when you minister for Christ, whether it's as a Sunday school teacher or a parent who's trying to communicate the gospel to a child or a preacher in a pulpit or any other means of doing ministry, there's going to be some suffering. There's going to be some opposition. And it's going to take hard work to persevere in that ministry. Ministry that proclaims the cross is really an extension of the cross. Hebrews 13.13 says that Christ's people will, quote, bear the disgrace that he bore. And that same thing almost exactly comes in Acts 5.41 when the first apostles, you remember, shortly after the day of Pentecost, They were talking about Christ there in Jerusalem, and people said, whoa, what is this? Who are these people talking about this Jesus that we killed who they say is resurrected? And they started beating up on the disciples a little bit. And after those first beatings and warnings and so on, the apostles went out. Acts 5.41 says they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering for the name of Christ. They were saying we must belong to him because we're being treated exactly the way he was. In 20th century China, it's been said, and you know, we think China is just such a modern country and it's emerged into modern markets and all that, but I'll tell you, Christianity is still suffering in China and yet growing as it suffers. In the 20th century in China, it was said that the Chinese church always saw its largest bursts of growth every time the communist government decided they needed a crackdown and threw hundreds of preachers into prison. Guess what happened every time they did that? The church exploded. (laughs) They could never accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. Lock up all the preachers, and the church grows. That's God's rule in this world. His ministry suffers, but his gospel goes forward. Martin Luther said the cross is the... Natural pattern of Christian ministry. So he said, If I claim to be Christ's man, I must wear the colors of his court. In other words, I must suffer the way he did to some extent. And that's what Paul's saying here. Not that I'm supplying what is actually lacking in, in Jesus Christ, but, but in the church age, in the working out of the ministry of the gospel, suffering's going to come. And I'm seeing that in my own life, and ministry, as I bring the gospel to you, Paul said. And even if it isn't persecution, even if it isn't martyrdom, the implication here, especially as you go on, verse 2-1, I'm not looking at these verses in chapter 2 very much, but just the first phrase, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and those at Laodicea, that was a neighboring town. I'm struggling, I'm toiling It it was rowing upstream to bring the gospel of Christ into that culture, and it still is. Somehow we think that we've got this American culture that's very friendly to the message of the cross. It isn't. Never really has been. It's taking on opposition and working hard to make Christ's message known. If you're going to be one who acts with integrity as, as you counsel people, as people like Dr. Light and I and others, you know, counsel people in their lives, and they come in, and maybe they just want a nice little pat solution. Well, things aren't going so well. Can you just tell us two, three steps we can take? And, and maybe what they need is a hard, abrupt confrontation with sin in their lives, And that's hard. That takes toil. That takes courage to tell people what they don't want to hear. It's work to see the gospel having its effect in people's lives, to to make leadership decisions in the church, to daily pray, to study the Scriptures. You know, you don't just stand up and, and spiel off something. When I come to you in the pulpit, I'm not bragging at all, but I tell you, I spend at least 10 hours to come here every Sunday and bring you God's Word because it has to be carefully studied. It involves work. I don't just say a few things off the top of my head. There's work involved in ministry. Parents know this. To form Christ and to witness Christ in the life of a teenager, it takes consistency. It takes persistence. It takes thought. And it isn't simple. There's strain involved. There's struggle involved. Paul, one place, wrote about what he called the cares I have for all the churches. Pastors know what he was talking about. There's the joyous work in the ministry, but there's, there's also a lot of struggle and care. And notice, though, in verse 29, I want to close with this because Paul says something great here that you could easily pass right by. Verse 29, the last verse of Colossians 1, he says, I labor. There's a struggle. But listen, I labor struggling with all Christ's energy, which so powerfully works in me. You see, here's the secret to ministry, whether you're a parent, whether you're a preacher, whether you're a small group leader, Sunday school teacher, you labor to do it well. You labor to be faithful to the Scriptures, to this mystery of God revealed. You put your all into it. But all the time, you know, as you work in ministry, the real effectiveness of everything you do is supplied by the miracle power of God. The Holy Spirit accompanies His word. Otherwise, my words disappear into the air on Sunday morning and and do absolutely nothing. The power's from God. I see people burning out in ministry in various ways all around pastors, missionaries. You know, we put missionaries on a pedestal. We think they're some kind of super people because they obey God's call to go to a foreign land. Listen, behind the scenes, there are a lot of problems. Missionaries struggle. They get into foreign culture. Things don't work out. They don't, maybe they don't even get along with their fellow missionaries or they have family problems. And if they're trying to do ministry in their own strength, depending on their own exertion or their own educations or their own past successes, they're going to burn out. They need to know that the power to accomplish anything is the miracle power of God who reveals his word in the first place and will accompany it with life-changing effects. I want to close with 1 Corinthians 15.10, a completely different text that I think should be put alongside this text because Paul wrote there in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God, I am what I am, And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all the others. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Parents, remember that. In your ministry, and you do have a ministry, parents, to your children. Grandparents, you have a ministry to your grandchildren. Sunday school teachers, you have a ministry. Young people, anyone who's concerned about a non Christian friend or co worker, you have a ministry. It doesn't necessarily involve preaching sermons, but it involves living out Christ, saying the right word in the right time, representing Christ however you are able to that person. You must work at it, you must pray about it, but you also must understand that it's the mighty grace of God that will close the deal. Not you. In the end, real ministry for Christ begins and it ends in the power of God. And we ought not to wish that it would be any other way. Let's pray together. Father, we see Paul ministering, suffering for it, writing from a prison cell, and yet glowing with the reality of the Christ he can write about. And knowing that he has a message that is absolutely incandescent, that it shines with great power and glory and is able to secure eternal things and reveal deep things that human philosophy and the greatest scholars cannot know. And so we thank you that your ministry today works the same way. Keep us humbly remembering that you do ask us to work. You do ask us to witness. You do ask us to pray for and, and encourage and, and speak timely words to people around us that would show Christ. But the result belongs to you. And for that, we're thankful because it will be the result that you have planned for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.